Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talk, a place where negotiation trainers talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua, founder and principal at Max Negotiating, a spinoff of the Harvard Negotiation Project. Before we begin today, I have some really exciting news. For future episodes, I will be co-hosting with my colleague, Gwen Krause. Hello, Gwen. It is so lovely to have you on board. Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Krause, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners, Action Design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development. Gwen, it is so nice to have you on board, and it's a similar feeling to the time that we first met, which is a story I'd love to tell our audience I had recently joined Vantage Partners, a firm founded by Bruce Patton, co-author of Getting to Yes and Difficult Conversations. It was my very first training, which I believe we were standing in front of scientists and executives and procurement leaders. And I really felt that my entire future depended on my performance that day. And I remember hearing that Gwen Krause was an incredibly experienced, witty, funny person to train with. And not only is all of that true, um, but she was also incredibly supportive in walking me through my first training and, and all the nerves of that. So not just for this reason, but but many, we became fast friends. And it's just so nice to have you, Gwen. And I'm, I'm curious, is, is that how you remember our meeting too? I, I do. And thank you for all the kind words, Max. I also remember something that you might not have known, which was I was also a bit nervous. Every time you train with somebody for the first time, you don't really know who they are or how they're going to be in the room. And I realized immediately that Max was incredibly passionate about negotiation, really, really knowledgeable, and a, quite a skilled facilitator. Uh, and we, we did great that first day. Uh, it was also really, really fortuitous when Max called and asked me to co-host because I had just taken a course called How to Do a Podcast. So I think this was meant to be. And without further ado, let's start our next episode. While many of our guests are negotiation trainers who work in corporate environments, our next guest has used the principles of negotiation in a political and economic conflict. Zhuen Lai famously said, all diplomacy is a continuation of war by other means. Atiyah Qureshi, our guest for this episode, knows something about that. Of her many experiences, we're going to hear about Atiyah's work in Colombia with farmers and members of drug cartels navigating conflict around cocaine production. We will also explore what do you do when a member of a group is trying to derail the process? And what if that person is a representative of a drug cartel? Okay, Atiyah Qureshi, thank you so much for being here. Gwen and I are so happy to have you. Um, quick background for our for our listeners who don't have the pleasure yet of knowing Atiyah. Professor Qureshi is... Um, is working at MIT. Sloan is an author of a book on negotiation skills and has ongoing conflict resolution work in Colombia's cocaine growing region. Um, no shortage of exciting things, I think, for anyone to listen to, and especially for us in this negotiation bubble, um, really just in the heart of a lot of really fantastic things. And a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Trainer Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Woohoo. Um, so, you have a lot going on, but we hear that you have a story for us uh, related to your work, and we'd love to hear it. Yeah, one of the stories that really stands out in my mind is when I was in Colombia last year, 
And my work in Colombia often involves going from farming population to farming population in the cocaine growing region to convince farmers to stop growing coca for cocaine production and work together to produce a different crop. This is an incredibly challenging sell because farmers can make more money growing coca and they have no logistical lift because the cartel will just come pick up the cocaine and drop off the money every week. So what we're asking them to do is grow something that is harder to produce for less money in cooperatives. So then all of a sudden they actually have to work together, which as you can imagine, would create a lot of conflict. So one of the stories that really stands out in my mind is one particular cooperative that was supposed to be growing oranges. They had a lot of land with citrus on it. And I say supposed to be growing oranges because they had a leader who was not a farmer. So first red flag there, who had convinced them to instead of funneling money into growing their crop and getting it to market, to buy drones and that the drones would somehow make them all money. He didn't explain how the drones were going to make them money. He didn't explain what the drones were doing. He just would come to every meeting with a drone and say, this is, you know, don't worry, we're investing money in drones and we're all going to get rich. And that had been going on for months. I just, I stepped in there and in this meeting that they had coordinated to have me come in and help them progress as a cooperation, he brought his drone. And so he comes and sits down at this table, opens up his drone, is fiddling around with it. And I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, oh man, this is going to be a really interesting session. So I get started. And one of the things I quickly realize is that I have to establish credibility for myself because it's a group of 25 men, these older Colombian men in this circle, all staring at me with this guy sitting on the side with his drones. One of the other pieces that is relevant here is that that guy with the drones was somehow connected to the cartels. So I had to be really careful in that meeting because I think that one thing that was going on, and I couldn't confirm this, but my hunch was that he was distracting the farmers from growing oranges because they wanted them to continue growing coca and he was somehow plugged into the cartel. So he had this completely separate motive going on on the back end. So what I first did was at the beginning, when we talk about relationship building and how important that is in a negotiation, it was absolutely crucial here to talk to people before the meeting officially got started, to know their names, go around and have a conversation with them individually and break down some of that barrier between me versus them, which was very much there, right? These Colombian farmers in a rural part of Colombia versus this American woman who also isn't white. And in Colombia, you still have very much this sentiment of lighter skin equals more powerful equals better. So that was another barrier. So that developing the relationship at the beginning was helpful. And then when we kicked off the meeting and I started speaking with the farmers about what was going on, this drone guy kept interrupting me. 
and trying to explain why the drones were so important when I was asking all of the other farmers what their perspective was. So he wasn't letting anyone speak and he didn't want me to speak. So this is where we really got into the five emotional concerns. He was incredibly assertive about his higher status and he kept trying to drive my status down in addition to driving the other farmer's status down. And I saw that within probably the first 10 minutes of meeting and I realized that I had to showcase that I had high status for the other farmers to listen to me. So what I did was I had to shut him down every time he started speaking, especially when I was trying to speak to these other farmers in the group. And if he interrupted them, I would shut him down because we had set ground rules at the beginning of the meeting saying no interrupting, everyone will have a time to talk. You, we would like everyone to share and participate and try not to use devices, try to be present, right? Pretty, pretty standard norms. And I was able to refer back to those norms every time he interrupted. And so what I did in that case was lowered his status, elevated my own, but also elevated the status of the other farmers in that room because it, it was apparent that they never got an opportunity to speak when he was around. I, okay, so just I just want to start with a question. What does that sound like? And how do you do that, given that in so many ways, in terms of dimensions of identity, um, you're not walking in there immediately being given the room? So how do you diplomatically lower an older male's status while raising your own or others? What does that sound like? Well, I'm a fairly assertive person. For me, it sounds like listen, we had all agreed to these norms beforehand. And while I appreciate that you have something to say, we'll come back to you when it's your turn. But right now, this is where we're at. And I said that probably 10 times in a period of five minutes when he kept interrupting. And after the 10th time, he stopped because he knew that he wasn't going to get away with it. And he had agreed to the norms in the beginning. I made sure that everyone had agreed to the norms at the beginning. So once you agree to something and you said that you're, that's what you're going to do, it's really hard to claw your way back and show up and interrupt in a way that seems authoritative afterward. Yeah. And I think um, that, sorry, Gwen. No, I just have so many questions about this, <laughs> <Right>? this story. <laughs> Um, one is, and this is just a, a sort of a, a content question, what was it about these drones that was going to meet the farmer's interest? You know, you said he was trying to distract, but was there some reason he was giving them that they were going to make money from these drones? He wasn't, he wasn't giving them any data other than these drones are what are going to help us be able to visualize what's going on on the farm. But that's not helpful to farmers, right? That's not what they need. They don't need that visualization. But he was saying, oh, this is what's going to help us actually grow the fruit. This is what we have to do first. We need this whole, you know, army of drones that are going to go and look over the orchard to make sure that everything is progressing. But nothing was progressing because they weren't doing any of the farming. I was just going to say one more piece of that is when you have this richer, lighter skinned, well-spoken, educated man come in and say, I will lead you to riches. And here's technology that we've heard about that you probably haven't seen. It's really hard to 
make the connection that, oh, this guy is not legit and he's leading us astray because there's so there's such a wide gap between the farmers and what they perceive and what these stories that this drone guy was spinning. And I have an, another question, which is actually sort of backing way up. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a really tough sell to farmers because the coca is easier, more um, lucrative for them. How how did you tap into their interests in the first place to get them to grow oranges rather than coca? So that was actually later. I mean, they they are farmers and they have citrus orchards. So it is something that they had slightly established, but they weren't doing anything with the citrus. They weren't farming. They weren't getting it to market. They were focused on these drones. They were not working together. So my job was to come in and really move away from this drone idea and get them to focus on the citrus. And one of the ways that I did that after establishing authority and dealing with the status issue was to start giving some autonomy to the farmers, right? They needed autonomy in the conversation to be able to voice what was going on from their perspective. And what I did was I started walking through what does it look like for you to sell oranges? And this is where I think it's really important in a situation like this to be able to get into the nitty gritty of the details of a deal. So what I did was I actually laid out the financials of the orange selling. So how many oranges can you produce? Where does, what does it look like to get that to market? Then we had people in the room who wanted to support them there was a nonprofit who was trying to make a match between the farmers and market. So they were able to provide some data saying, this is how much you can sell it for. And thus showing what their revenue would be from their sales. And if they work together and were able to sell at a higher volume, what those sales look like. And all of a sudden they could see what the numbers looked like and how valuable selling oranges could actually be, but no one had taken the time to walk right. them through the numbers. Right. What I'm hearing and this, I mean, I'm, I'm biased in so many ways, but the element that's popping out to me is criteria mm -hmm. or awareness in two ways. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk more about them specifically in my head. Um, I don't think it's intuitive to everyone to begin a meeting with an agreement. So you're giving yourself or the, as a facilitator, the power to refer back to it, to say, hey, democratically, we agree to this. Not, I'm not telling you this. This is what we said, the power of the group. Um, and also in terms of laying out the financials, um, it sounds like you had a lot of relationship building to do so that you could then get to a place where they'd listen to you doing the consultant thing and the financial breakdown. Um, can you tell us more about your thought process in terms of um, impartiality, neutrality, and criteria, how much that was or wasn't part of your process? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that setting those norms at the beginning was really important. And it was something I realized from the first association I went to, because I didn't set norms the first time I had the conversation with farmers and it was chaos. Everyone kept bickering with each other, they wanted, someone kept speaking for longer and trying to take control of the entire conversation. So I learned from a failed model, a failed conversation at the beginning that I then had to claw my way back into on how important that piece was. 
when you have a large group of people that you're trying to navigate a conversation with, setting guidelines for how people are going to behave and interact, especially when there's a power dynamic at play, is incredibly valuable. And then you're you had another question there about... I mean, my head is is spinning in terms of all of the things that are going on in that room yeah. based on cultural differences, um, status related to identity, presented identity. I, I think the most interesting thing in the world to me is, is when a facilitator or a trainer uses the power of the room mm-hmm. instead of their power, if that makes sense, by yeah. thinking about everyone's latent interests. Yeah. And I, I just, I love, I mean, this is like such a badass story. And so yeah. I, I'm just curious to, to hear more about it in any yeah. aspect that's exciting to you. That's actually, that's a great point. And it reminds me of listening was really important prior to being able to give the details of the financials exactly to your point, because they wouldn't have listened to me if I had gone through that model at the beginning. And one of the pieces I did after setting the norms was I asked them two questions and I asked them to each write it down and on pieces of paper and I would collect it and they could do it anonymously. One of the questions was, why are you here? Why is it helpful for you to work in a cooperative? And the second issue was, what's the biggest issue that you as a cooperative are facing? And so everyone wrote that down anonymously and I collected that information and then shared back the information because they were all too afraid to voice it themselves, but they wrote it down knowing it was anonymous. And then when I voiced it back, all of a sudden they realized we are actually on the same page. We all have the same fears and the same desires. And that collective understanding was huge in being able to realize, yeah, we should actually be working on this orange thing. We all do want to work on that. And we have a big conflict because that's not what we're working on. And we have an inability to work together based on the way the structure is right now. I I just love the move of giving them their voice anonymously because it sounds like with this man in the room, Mm -hmm. that was gonna be very difficult. And I I just had a question too about, you said that this this man with the drones was allied with the cartels. Is there an implied threat there of um, his power or status with his relationship to the cartels? It did certainly feel like there was a power dynamic, but what it felt more like was there was a financial power dynamic and the threat of violence was luckily a bit less because they were in an area that was more protected. They weren't in the super mountainous region, which is more isolated and people are more vulnerable in farther out mountainous regions. So the physical threat luckily did seem less, but there was this financial element there. When I think that's such an interesting question in terms of BATNA and the lurking BATNA in the room. And the, I wonder just to push this in any direction, anyone wants to go with it. I wonder about specifically when we're talking about inequality in terms of power, whether it's financial or physical, when we talk about like whether it's national relations or gender relations, how much is the implicit threat of force at play when we're speaking to each other? And is that just in, in Colombia when you're dealing with cartel or might it also be you know, part of your domestic work within US office cultures? It's definitely much more physical because there's a history of extreme violence in Colombia with the cartels. 
So in Colombia, that is a very different type of threat than in the US in corporate culture. What I would say in US in the corporate culture is that you still have power dynamics at play. And rather than violence as the threat, it is, I'll fire you and you will be financially severely impacted if you cross me or if you don't do it my way. And there's always that, you know, the we talk a lot right now about psychological safety or the lack of psychological safety. There was certainly a lack of it in Colombia and I see it in corporate culture almost everywhere I go. It is not safe to share your own opinion or your perspective or how you think things should be done differently because the backlash could be you don't get promoted or you get fired. And that is something that is lingering heavily in a lot of cultures. So you mentioned in, in the feedback that you got in those anonymous questions that they came to the realization that they had a real shared interest in, in being in a cooperative. Yeah. To what degree did, did that move make them aware of their actual BATNA? Because it sounds to me like it, it, it made their, their BATNA of not working with you and not being cooperative come to light that that wasn't as good as maybe they thought it was? Yeah, exactly. I think that you're spot on. What they realized was, oh, because I was their BATNA, right? Like I, I was coming in and I was their BATNA and I was trying to convince them to move to their BATNA. And what I did was show them that their BATNA was actually very valuable. And so through the process of getting them to share and get on the same page, what I did was get this common understanding in the sense that people had shared needs and interests and concerns and from there, being able to go into that financial model and talk through the pieces of it, I actually had, I pulled them into that conversation. I was the one asking them, the farmers specifically, how much do you think you can produce? So all of a sudden it became, they had buy-in to the process and then we started with joint problem solving. So we were able to move into a place where instead of me talking at them for 90 minutes, we were all collaborating together to build a better BATNA for them. That's interesting that I, I get it now that you were their, their BATNA to not be dealing with yeah. the, the drone guy. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, I love the process, but I, I, I am so curious about the result. What, what was the result of, of this meeting? Yeah, so one of the other pieces that I did to improve status and autonomy was they, we're supposed to have monthly meetings as a cooperative to continue building on how they were gonna to work together and figure out the details of that. And they hadn't put any structure into place. So what I helped them with was an operating agreement for their cooperative. I said, who's going to be the leader of the cooperative? And I said that it could not be the drone guy. And I made it very explicit that the drone guy could not be the leader and they all anonymously voted on who they wanted the leader to be. And it was not the drone guy. Like they could, I mean, they, they were allowed to vote for the drone guy, but they didn't, they chose someone else. And then who was going to be the communication person for the cooperative, who was going to set the meetings, make sure everyone knew about them. There was someone else who was going to be the secretary. So taking notes and making sure that information was shared and you had the treasurer. So who's managing, managing the financial component. So we assigned roles. So everyone felt like they actually had something 
that they were contributing to this process. So it became much more democratic. Yeah. And then from there, what I did was I asked them, how many times are you going to meet? When are you going to meet? And we got into the specifics of how they are going to actually function together as a cooperative. And then we wrote out, it was probably, you know, on those, I insisted that I always traveled around with those um, sticky white sheets. And in Colombia, those are very hard to find, but we found them and I would always carry those around and we'd write the agreement down on four of those sheets. And then I'd ask everyone to come up and sign it. So that was the final commitment that they would make is we all agree to what is written here. And I'm signing my name to this agreement on how we're going to work together. What a model intervention, literally just in my head. I'm like, okay, relationship by asking them questions, you're opening communication. You know, what are you concerned about? What could you do as a farmer? Like showing them regard, which then leads to their interests of, first of all, being listened to, but then also, okay, I need to make a living and then being open to option creation, evaluating that with criteria in terms of, hey, what does the market, what can the market do for you? And then in terms of commitment, I think a lot of times when people negotiate, they say, let's sign, let's pop the bottle and then we're done. But you know, if you're not thinking all the way through to the end, it's gonna get you later. So um, I, I'm struck by a few things. And one of them is, is how smooth that sounds, like how smooth your outcome was, but how much work it sounds like went into that. And I think there's a part of me, at least sometimes that when there's that guy in the room, whether it's a potentially cartel affiliated someone or someone who's just trying to hijack the meeting, I wanna say, you can't talk. And if I do that, that won't work. Right. But if you have an awareness of the room, like you have in terms of what other people want, you can put together a process by which you know you'll get an outcome that's better. And I guess my question is, if you're not a person who necessarily is, feels like they're fantastic at reading a room, hmm. what would you recommend? Oh gosh. That's a really hard, it's a great question. And it's a really hard question because so much of what I did and what it changed between cooperative to cooperative because of reading the room and yeah. being able to analyze what was going on with people's body languages. Because also I would sometimes need to use a translator. I speak Spanish, but I would need a translator to convey some of these ideas that I couldn't in Spanish because they were too complex for my vocabulary. And then I would get frustrated because I could understand how they were translating, but they weren't doing it in the way I wanted them to. And yeah. they weren't doing it in a very assertive way. I think if you can't, if you're not as knowledgeable about reading the room, one thing is asking the group, giving it your best shot and coming up with the structure that works for you and then pausing and asking, is this working? Do we need to change something? And having periodic moments where you take breaks and you can refer back to somebody or pick someone that feels like a trusted source in the group who is contributing and say, what do you think? Can you give me some feedback on how this group is operating and where you feel like this conversation is going and if I should take a different tone or technique because it's really helpful to have a confidant who knows the group and understands their personalities and perspectives and refer to them. So I have to ask this question, um, but Atia, if I'm at the front of the room and I'm leading the group, doesn't me asking a question to the group surrender my leadership and make me look weak? It's so funny that people think that and I never feel that is the case. 
I think that asking questions and making sure you're on the right track is almost always appreciated. Now, if you're in a boardroom and you're presenting, maybe it's a different scenario, but when you're actually trying to get people to work together and move to a more productive outcome, getting the input of the people who it's going to impact is huge. It's incredibly important to the buy-in and actually making that positive change going forward. One of my, you know, my part of my master's degree was user-centered design. So how do you design things with the user in mind? And solutions need to be designed with the user in mind. And you have to ask the user what's going to work for you. If I came in with a solution for them saying, yeah, this is exactly what you need to do, it will definitely fail because I don't understand them or their concerns or their problems or challenges. And so I have to be able to understand that before I can help them get to a better place. And it sounds like you worked really hard to make them part of, of crafting of options. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. you might have you might have had a vision when you walked in of what would work for them, but you were smart enough to not come in and just sell your option. I'm so impressed with the the process over and over again in that meeting of having to shut down the by by using process negotiation. Shut down this drone guy, which is not only raising your status, but I think making the farmers more comfortable because they might not have really liked being pushed around by this guy. But you've taken his status down time after time, and then you have managed to not have him voted to to lead this. Was there any backlash from him? He was getting very frustrated and upset. And I think at one point toward the end of the meeting, he left and he didn't sign that final contract on how they were going to work together. He continued to try to interrupt, especially toward the end as we were getting momentum for how they would work together and the financial model around selling the oranges. I wouldn't let him jump in and try to derail the entire negotiation and conversation that was happening. I don't believe I had followed up afterward and I don't believe anything. There was any consequential backlash to the farmers, which I was very glad to hear. Um, I think that he knew with a group of these 25 older men that his time had come to an end of pushing them around. And at the very beginning, you mentioned, you know, you're an American woman in a group of 25 men. Do you ever explicitly, talk about that or you know do you ever put that on the table you know I realize that this is a an odd dynamic or do you just rely on your ability to facilitate I don't put it on the table yeah um I think that is one thing that from my perspective when I'm in the room with that group it degrades a little bit of my credibility And what I've realized is that going in with confidence saying, I am here and I'm going to do this and building up their trust in me is the best way to go. I know sometimes it is very valuable to put that on the table, but in these cases, my instinct told me it's not the right move and to just show them rather than tell them how this can work and why they should trust me and listen to me. I love that show don't tell. Yeah. Uh, I first heard that from my 11th grade English teacher and I, I, it comes back in every facet of my life. Um, and I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about whether in your daily life or when you're in the room, 
wh why is it that showing is more effective than telling? And how do you do that? My mom always told me that you have to follow up word with action. Otherwise your word doesn't mean anything. And to me, at the end of the day, all I have is my word and my reputation. And the action of it is what's proving to them what I want to do. The words are hollow without the action. And sometimes the words aren't necessary. You can just jump into the action because I had a limited amount of time with each cooperate with each association. I had about 90 to 120 minutes and spending time trying to convey through words why I'm credible was a waste of time in my opinion because I had to move from one to another and just jumping in and showing them and getting us to a productive place quickly was much more effective and a valuable use of time. How do you do it is I think having a process in mind, right? I messed up the first time. And after that first time, I had so many learnings and takeaways of what I should be doing. And luckily I had a chance to repeat it like 16 more times. And so of course, each time it got a little bit better and coming up with a process and a structure in your own mind and the story you're going through and how you are going to move people, what actions you're going to take to get them to buy in and feel included and listened to in the process, like writing down their answers on a scrap of paper and collecting them and reading them back, um, those type of techniques and those initial actions that you can take with them, the first couple that you can think of and really come to the meeting with those ready to go gets you on a good start. And then from there, your instinct will take over and you'll be able to, you'll be able to continue on. But they always say when you're public speaking, all you need to do is memorize the first few lines and then you're fine. And so it's kind of the same thing. You need to know your first few moves and how you're gonna set the stage really well. And from there, you're gonna be fine because you know your job, you know your work and it'll feel natural. And something that I'm also hearing in that which I think is really important, right? So you're a professor at Sloan. You have written books. You have just told us a really impressive story about basically helping a collective of Colombian farmers in a microcosm defeat fascism, right? Like in a, in a democratic process, which mm -hmm. I think has implications for a lot of other things. What I'm curious about is I also hear you being humble about mistakes you've made, which everyone who's honest makes. Mm -hmm. um, and your ability to learn from it. I'm just curious how, you know, I'm thinking about, I think about pretty often how we in the field um, can shrink the gap between what we say to do and, and how we actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess I'm just wondering what, if any, thoughts you have as, um, as a person in the field in terms of what you like to see or how you like to work and how we might as a community um, walk the walk. It's so funny. I was just talking to someone, a couple of women earlier this week and how it's so much harder to walk the walk on things that you teach, right? Your own, your own specialty and how we sometimes forget to active listen or we sometimes forget to make a list of our own interests or use external criteria. One of the things that 
reminds me to do it is the value I see in it and teaching it certainly helps because I'm constantly reminded of the value. I'm telling people about the value. I'm reminded of it. And I'm thinking, yeah, I need to be doing that. Most people in this field are overachievers, probably fairly type A. I certainly resonate with that. And failure or messing up hurts and it sucks. And I think that what I've been able to do is give myself permission to mess up, but also give myself permission to feel really bad about it. But also, but then figure out how you're going to process it. There's a great book called Burnout that talks about stress cycles and our stress response and how we as humans actually don't complete our stress cycle. And we just hold all of that in, right? We, when we were more primal in nature, we had all of these different ways that we were completing our stress cycle. Everyone talks about, you know, the amygdala and the cortisol and adrenaline and what's going on in our bodies. But there's a final wrap up to that point that is portrayed in that book where it's, you need to do something to relieve that stress. And we generally don't do that. And so that's something that's always on my mind where, what am I going to do to relieve the stress? Because unless I relieve the stress, I won't be able to come back and learn from that situation. I'll feel upset and angry and guilty until I relieve the stress and then I can come back and learn from it. And so that's been really helpful for me personally on being able to move through that entire cycle and come back around and learn and improve and walk the walk, so to speak. That's a really great point about relieving the stress. I'm curious, what does that look like for you? What, what is the stress release? Some examples of how you do that. Yeah, my one really big one for me is exercise. My husband and I love to bike. We do a lot of road biking. And so going on a really aggressive bike ride will be hugely helpful for me, right? If I'm starting out at an eight stress level, it'll drop me down to a two because I've exerted so much energy into, and I'm also outside. So being outside and exerting energy is a huge relief for me in my stress. Um, and that's the number one thing I would say works best for me. Um, we've mentioned a couple of times that you've written a book and I think that our listeners would love to know, I don't think we've mentioned the name of the book. Um, what is the name of your book? Oh gosh, well the book, the, it still has a working title because we are in the midst of sending it to a publisher now. The book is about exercises on how to improve your negotiation skills. So we have a couple of names that we're still playing around with. I can't give you the name yet, but I will hopefully be able to come back to you soon and give you a final name. But really what our goal is, is there's so much theory and content out there that's fantastic. And what we wanted to do is supplement that by giving people exercises for how to tangibly improve on those skills. So this goes back to Max's question about walking the walk, right? Like I should be practicing those exercises all the time myself to continually be improving within the negotiation and conflict resolution sphere. I can't wait to read it. That's, that's very generous of you to share those kinds of exercises. Sometimes we tend to hoard those a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, and just to that point, isn't that part of walking the walk that information exchange leads to better outcomes, right? In competition and healthy competition, great. Let's develop better and more effective things. Let's push on that. And I just want to, my, my final observation, then I want to hear what you two are taking away is the serendipity of you 
talking about exercises and exercise, which is to say that we think about negotiation as a pretty mental or psychological thing. And a lot of it, I think about being a more aware negotiator is about physicality. Mm -hmm. How am I using my body? Am I sitting? Am I standing? What am I feeling? Um, and also instead of the fight your negative emotions, which hasn't worked for me so far, um, go with it, right? Complete the cycle, ride it out, easier said than done. Um, but I'm, I'm very much taking with me something that is so clearly grounded in cerebral tradition of academia, um, mm -hmm. is in many ways much more about performance and exercises uh, than we might think. And yeah. I'm curious, um, Gwen and then Atiyah, last word, uh, your, your takeaways for the day, because we heard a lot. I'm, I'm just so struck by the power of negotiating process mm. and that you negotiating the process of those conversations laid down some standards of legitimacy that you could just keep going back to, you know, whenever you got in trouble with, with this man who was trying to take over, um, just coming back to, look, we all committed to this, this process. And I think that sometimes we give that short shrift um, and it was the big lesson that you learned, as you said, you messed up the first time. Um, and that is, you, you were the keeper of the process that established your, for lack of a better word, power in the room, um, credibility in the room, that they had agreed to this process that you were now the, the facilitator of. And that really took away almost all of the power of that, that gentleman that was trying to derail you. Yeah. I would say my takeaway from this, there it's twofold. We don't always get the opportunity in this field to do something so impactful. So talking about it just now is a good reminder of how much I love the work, even when we have to go through the slog of the work that isn't, that doesn't give you the same high as walking out of the room after a successful situation like that. But it does remind me of how much impact, how much positive impact we can have in this field. And then the second piece I would say is you're right, Max, that it, we should be more open and sharing. And to that point, I think that there are more opportunities to provide people with tangible ways of improvement in this field. And I'm doing some research on that specifically around women and minorities, because I think that is an opportunity, an area for improvement within the field. And I want to make it all open source because people should be able to improve from any facet of life. And I want to, you know, if there's one thing I can do in the world, it's to give people the ability to improve their own situations, get more money, get better jobs, get better deals ultimately, which hopefully decreases some of that inequity. And I think that also on the theme of walking the walk, I'm, I'm just very struck with not just what you do, but how you're doing it. Right, and, and that that resonates. And I think that we're all much more powerful when what we believe you know, is in alignment with what we're saying and doing. Um, Atiyah, I'm sure that people wanna get in touch with you if they didn't before, definitely now hearing about everything that you're doing. What is the best way for people to get in contact with you? Or, and, and, and when that book comes out, uh, to check that out too. Yeah, um, my website would probably be the easiest way. You can contact me directly through my website. My email is up there. It's my name, atiyakureshi.com, A-T-T-I-A-Q-U-R-E-S-H-I. And similarly, information on the book will also be up there. 
amazing. Atia, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. It's been delightful. I think what I'm taking away from that conversation, Gwen, is the idea that negotiation isn't an event that happens in a single moment or a single day at a table, but a process of continuing to involve stakeholders and, um, and being thoughtful about the process. Um, I also am thinking about the disruptive people that have been in my rooms that are not in drug cartels and how what I want to say is something like, oh my God, can you shut up and let people learn? And how much preparation and patience goes into moving from what you want to say to what will actually be effective. And I thought we just heard such a good example of that. Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't just that Atiyah had a, a disruptive person, that that disruptive person had incredible power in the room. And I, I think that we've all been there too, where we've had somebody that was, was really trying to hijack the training and was very, very senior. And that's a, that's a very delicate balance. Uh, and I was just really struck with Atiyah's perseverance. Uh, she had to keep bringing back around the the previously agreed upon process commitments that people had made uh, and and just had to keep coming back to them and and proving to this this person who had both power and was being disruptive that that she wasn't going to give up on on the group commitment that had been made previously and holding him to the standard of legitimacy that he wanted to blow past. Um, and, you know, as we said, when we were talking to Atia, you know, sort of just really the power of process. And, you know, not that we would do this now, but it also, it just popped into my head, this idea of, of as you said, it's a process. The relationship map that she has obviously drawn in her head or on paper to see the relationships between um, the cartels, the farmers, who were the farmers who had uh, great influence over other farmers, um, how did she work that relationship map as well when she did not have abject power in the situation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. And do you want to introduce um, our next week's guest? We hope you enjoyed our interview with Atia Qureshi, and please join us next week when Max and I will be talking to Joe Budman, a longtime negotiation trainer and the founder of Urban Rural Action. Guess what, friend? You've just listened to Trainer Talk, a podcast where negotiation trainers talk shop. You can listen to this podcast on every podcast platform. If you have comments or questions, you can reach out to Gwen at G-W-E-N-K-A at AOL.com or to me at Maxwell at MaxNegotiating.com. If you want to support this podcast, you can spread the word by sharing it on LinkedIn and most importantly, by tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us and happy negotiating.